This is the Church Planting Podcast, brought to you by the Broadcast Network. Broadcast exists to support, train and encourage church planters. For more information about who we are or about the training that we offer, please visit our website at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org. Hello and welcome to episode 148 of the Broadcast Church Planting Podcast. At the moment, Broadcast are partnering with Unreached to bring you a series called Margin to Mike, where we hear voices from the global church. And in this episode, we're bringing you Ryan Savile from South Africa, who will be talking about the idolatry of race. You can find the full notes on what Ryan's talking about at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org slash episode 148. So here is Ryan Savile. In this video, I want to speak about two big ideas, the idea of systemic injustice and its associated idea of racial socialization. And I want to speak about it from an evangelical perspective. Now, for evangelicals, any convincing engagement with these theories has to come from a close reading of the Bible. So I want to provide a theologically reformed reading of 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, and then apply it to the development of race. We are here considering to what extent systemic injustice and racial socialization are affirmed by a reformed reading of John's warning against idolatry. So let's start with the context of 1 John 2, verse 15 and 16. Now, not loving the world is central to John's conclusions that Christians ought to keep yourselves from idols. That's how he ends off his letter. He mentions idolatry for the first time in his final sentence of his letter. Conclusions summarize what's been said, and the letter is therefore all about idolatry. Throughout his letter, he's spoken about the motivations beneath our behaviors or our idols. And so, as C.H. Spurgeon said, the love of the world is essentially idolatry. So here's the first part of our verse, verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. Now, world is here defined in a negative sense as something not to be loved. But in John's gospel, he describes the world and the way that we ought to relate to the world in a positive sense. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So John's concern is how Christians ought to relate to the world. In one sense, we ought to love the world and be um, positive towards the world. But in another sense, we shouldn't be influenced by the seductive allure of the world. We're not looking at how to love the world in this video. That's the second part. But we are arguing that loving the world comes from a place of not loving the world. When the church discovers holiness and when the church loves truth and justice and empathy, it's able to advance the gospel more effectively. It has missiological implications. A pure church, a church that prioritizes all of these things, humility and honesty and empathy, is a holy church and the church that is able to be loving. But what does John mean by the world? The broader context reveals that the world is a system organized in opposition to God under the ultimate control of spiritual forces of evil. John stresses the necessity of our awareness that they are evil spiritual forces so that no one would be led astray by the devil. And in John's thinking, the devil is the prince of this world and he's characterized as a thief 
the father of lies. And so it's unsurprising that the world appeals subtly to our affections, the flesh, the eyes, the pride of life. So while the world is led by hidden forces of spiritual evil, it includes human participation. In John's letter, the world is now false prophets and now the broader human society. So what about race? Tim Keller reminds us that it's impossible to understand a culture without discerning its idols. There's no way to challenge idols without doing cultural criticism. And there's no way to do cultural criticism without discerning and challenging idols. We need to analyze the impact of race on our societies. And I'm going to be looking at South Africa as an example. I think this can be done for other countries in a similar way. So, secondly, the racialization of society. Now, race is a social construct. It's developed in the 17th century. It's perfected by the 19th century to legitimize European colonialism. The Bible affirms that we have one common ancestry. There is no such thing as black or as white. And while there are various ethnicities, we belong to one humanity with minuscule genetic variations because from one man he made all nations, Acts 17 verse 26. We have way more in common, both genetically and as human beings, than we have apart from each other. But in the year 2020, to be black or to be white still affects one's life. We live in a racialized world. Emerson and Smith define a racialized society as a society when race matters profoundly for differences in life experiences, life opportunities, and social relationships. A racialized society can also be said to be a society that allocates differential economic, political, social, or even psychological rewards to a group along racial lines, lines that are socially constructed. This is a dense quote, and it's best explained by looking at a particular example. So we're going to look at South Africa and how South Africa has been racialized. So colonialism, number one. The most important legacy of colonialism for our discussion is that it racialized capitalism, which is our reigning economic system. And as a result of that, the division of labor through slavery. As global capitalism developed, the division of labor through the enslavement of millions of Africans meant that capitalism itself took on racial characteristics, and this remains unchanged in our contemporary South African society. Secondly, healthcare. Currently in South Africa, there's a 20-year difference in life expectancy between white South Africans and black South Africans. The Human Development Index, or HDI, put together by the UN measures GDI, education, and life expectancy. Now, South Africa ranks 113th out of 189 countries. That's roughly in the middle. But when you factor race into the HDI, white South Africans rank 15th in the world. That's on par with the UK and with Sweden. One of the reasons for this is a regressive policy that hasn't changed um, since apartheid. Half of the national healthcare budget goes to subsidizing a already well-resourced private healthcare system, which only looks after 16% of South Africa, while the rest of the budget goes to, sub, goes to providing money for the public health care system, which provides health care for millions and millions of South Africa, the vast majority. Number three, income. Racial inequality is also expressed through our Gini inequality coefficient of 0.7. We also have one of the highest wealth coefficients in the world with a wealth differential of 0.95. The Saldo study that um, concludes that Africans remain underrepresented in the middle class and race is still one of the strongest predictors of poverty in South Africa. 
According to the World Bank report in 2018, wages show a distinct racial divide across all job categories. Black South Africans earn much less on average than white South Africans who earned 87% higher wages in wages. Income has a direct relation to education. For wage four jobs or jobs that require highly skilled labor, a college degree results in a 148% increase in wages relative to no education. That's again from the World Bank report. But South African universities have seven times as many white South Africans enrolled compared to black South Africans, despite people of color being the vast majority in South Africa. What about the church? In 1488, Bartholomew Dyers arrived at the Cape. On arrival, he fought the Khoi Khoi, and as his first act of victory, he planted a wooden cross, and Christian historians summarized that Christianity was to feature in every stage of the ensuing European colonization process. Slavery ended in the 19th century, but in the 20th century, a small group of Enkhekerk ministers uh, started to begin the doctrines of apartheid. Now, one would expect that post-democratic evangelicalism would do a major turnaround but Anthony Balcom sums up the journey of the conservative evangelical position aptly in his paper From Apartheid to the New Dispensation. And he uses the Church of England in South Africa as a case study that represents conservative evangelicals generally. He says, and I quote him at length, that when Bishop Frank Retief was asked to appear before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, his submission demonstrated that he is well aware of the wider Anglican's community, Anglican communes opinion that Caesar is, in his words, a recalcitrant, schismatic group of unreasonable right-wing evangelicals. Moreover, he says, we have no one to blame for these views but ourselves. But here's what's alarming about the statement, and consider what he leaves out in his definition of justice. Retief makes it clear, however, that Caesar will continue to clearly teach and preach the word of God, and that it will not shirk its responsibilities in the socio-political sphere in the future, naming specifically the ethical challenges of the day in relation to crime and corruption, abortion, pornography, gambling, and the proposed decriminalization of prostitution. Balcom here suggests that contemporary evangelical movements continue to miss race in their definitions of justice. Their focus is exclusively on crime and corruption, abortion, pornography, gambling, prostitution, but not race. We don't have the space in this video to speak about how socialization affects our theology, but it seems like Western Christianity missed the eschatological aspects of the gospel in, in, in relation to justice. And we would love to rectify that so that the theology is solid and that the outworking of that theology isn't misapplied. So this brief survey shows us two things. Number one, that being black or white, still matters. We could say that this is all identity politics, but to use Daniel Aiken's words, there is an evil organized system that benefits whites through exploiting blacks. Some may want to dismiss this as identity politics, but the black and white identity still has social meaning, and so we need to speak about it in order to ameliorate these systems. I think that what people are most concerned about with regards to identity politics is that groups deprioritize their Christian identities and they end up fighting for their narrow self-serving interests. The irony is that that's exactly what a racialized society is. It's a nasty form of identity politics. 
But the way to mitigate against this is by dealing with our socialization and recovering a theology of justice that isn't shot through with self-interest. Secondly, the reason for ongoing racial idolatry is linked to socialization, or to use Rene Patila's language, the world, the institution, institutions and ideologies that transcend the individual have conditioned our society. Now, when I was growing up, I used to play soccer often, but there was always this one kid that whenever he got the ball, he would always do the same thing. When he got the ball, there would first be fancy footwork, he'd run off by himself, even if he was covered with um, defenders, and even if he had teammates wide open, he wouldn't pass, but he would go for glory. And everybody would shout out, don't go for glory. But it was always the same, irrespective of how many times we spoke to him about it, irrespective of how many times he missed, he would always go for glory. Because pride has a way of changing our perspectives. Pride causes people to see themselves very differently to what is realistic. Now, in a democratic society, systemic racism is continued and perpetuated by people. People perpetuate systems. So we all need to locate ourselves in the system and decide who we want to be and what we want to do about it. But locating ourselves is difficult because it requires deep humility. There's one important phrase that John uses which explains why locating ourselves is difficult. It's the phrase pride of life. Now the word translated life is not the word that is often used for life, the Greek word zoe, which means eternal life, but the less familiar bios. The same word is translated as material possessions in chapter 3 verse 17. It's used to describe the relationship that possessions have with people. Possessions induce pride. Pride is a reference to a distorted perception of reality. It was pride that caused my friend to go for glory all the time. Pride causes people to think of themselves more highly than what's realistic. And pride is something that we all have to deal with within ourselves. Now remember George Orwell's novel 1984. The ruling party embarked on the redefinition of language and the new language was called Newspeak. The reason for this redefinition is revealed in the story to the main protagonist as a question. Don't you see that the whole aim of Newspeak is to narrow the range of thought? If our vocabulary is limited, so are our thoughts. If race is defined as prejudice based on a sense of racial superiority as the Oxford definition goes, then it follows that anyone with prejudice is a racist. But this ahistorical definition doesn't match up with systemic nature of racism. Racism confers real privileges and real disadvantages. The commonly held Oxford Dictionary definition skews the reality and it minimizes our participation within the system. So we all have prejudice and we all discriminate, every human being of every color and creed, but racism is more than just attitudes and actions. It's an arrangement of society that provides white people with white privilege. Jamar Tisby describes white privilege like a moving walkway, the kind that you get at airports, which provides acceleration. Now, the person on the travelator goes much faster than the person that they zoom past for the same amount of effort. They still put effort in, they still walk, but their efforts are multiplied by a system. But here's what makes it hard to locate ourselves. Meritocracy. It's that deeply layered conviction that we always get what we work for. Some bristle at the notion of privilege, 
which suggests that white people didn't earn what they have. But imagine a playing field that is used for a soccer match on an incline. If the playing field is on an incline, it clearly works for one team and against the other team. Now, we are here discussing the incline of the playing field, not the work ethic of the players. Whether the teams work hard or not is irrelevant to the fact that the playing field is skewed. There is systemic racism and, and the systemic racism is like the playing field which is skewed. And it requires deep humility to acknowledge that one's achievement in the workplace or even in the church came through hard work, yes, absolutely, and through gifting, absolutely, but also through a skewed playing field, a system. We protect our pride when we choose to believe that people of color are where they are because they are lazy or generally inferior or have regressive cultures or will eventually catch up to white people after generations of training and discipleship or we believe that it'll take 30 years to indigenize leadership rather than to acknowledge that there is a system that has possibly influenced the way that the church operates. There's also a complex dynamic created between the privileged and the oppressed that the category of idolatry actually speaks to. Amongst the oppressed, there will be varied levels of, of compliance with hegemony. Corey Edwards says that there's a small group of black advocates in any multicultural church that do not only offer support to white interests, but will advocate for these interests. They are that critical mass of black attendees essential for interracial churches to affirm whiteness. Now, modern psychology speaks about dysfunctional relationships as codependent relationships. But David Paulison redefines codependency and speaks about co-idolatry. Co-idolatrous partners, he says, fit together in an uncanny way, creating massively destructive feedback loops in an idle system whose components complement each other all too well. Pastor Brian Lawrence puts this into plain language when he says, my experience under the tyranny of white evangelicalism has exposed me to a lot of cookery. Too many people of color have chosen to yes sir and no sir their way up Mount Significance as they hurriedly try to be liked while hopefully solidifying and extending their brand. So they don't speak to injustice. At best, they play it safe. They desire the invitations, book deals, and positive image. No person, no individual, irrespective of culture, of, of the color of their skin, no institution is free from the power of race. Now, if we are able to acknowledge that we do live in a racialized world that eschews privilege and disadvantages, we can begin to consider the effects of such a society, of such a system on society. And that's to say that systemic racism leads to racial socialization. But in our culture, which is deeply influenced by individualism, we are prone to think that we are free thinkers. We are not influenced by groups and history and society. But that's exactly what John is warning us against. We are influenced by outside forces. Modern psychology affirms that to think independently of other human beings is impossible. But does this mean that truth is relative? Are we so conditioned by external forces that we lack the ability to access objective truth? In short, the answer is no. D.A. Carson says that we must make the distinction between exhaustive knowledge of the Bible and true knowledge. We can know some things, but not everything. Evangelicals should affirm the biblical emphasis on the power of truth and the inerrancy of scripture, 
but we must also take seriously the truth about power. Jonathan Edwards was absolutely right about um, justification about, about justification by faith, but he was absolutely wrong about slavery. And, and power has an influence on our ability to access objective truth. And that is why learning in community and doing theology in community in healthy, interdependent ways is so vital right now. So contemporary critical race theorists like Robin DiAngelo speak about how our racial frames are shaped. The frame, and I quote her, is deep and extensive for thousands of stored bits these bits are pieces of cultural information, images, stories, interpretations, omissions, silences that are passed along from one person and group to the next and from one generation to the next. The message comes in various forms. So there are explicit messages which would be racist banter or denigrating comments which reinforce group identity and racial superiority. But then there's also subtle messages which come through the dominant role given to white people and their over-representation in positions of leadership. Subtle messages come through um, a preference for homogeneity, which sends the message that whiteness is the most attractive and it's the most superior culture. For example, if people choose to live in segregated neighborhoods, or only choose to have white friends, or only consume art from white people, or only read books or commentaries written by white authors, practice white flight when the neighborhoods, churches or schools start to diversify too much, or only consume reform theology, which isn't perhaps viewed as having a particular perspective, but is viewed as having the universal perspective while denigrating other streams of theology. The message is that whites have the universal perspective, nothing more is needed, and no loss should be felt at the lack of diversity. So, while sociologists won't use terms like the pride of life, they are most certainly identifying a form of pride, racial pride. They are observing the outworking of John's warning to the church. But lastly, displacing idols. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. The contrast between love for the world and love for God implies that they are mutually exclusive. The one cannot exist with the other. Love for the world pushes out love for the Father, and there doesn't seem to be any middle ground. But the opposite is also true. Only the love of God is able to displace our idols, and our old affections get replaced with new ones. In Thomas Chalmers' famous sermon on this verse, he believed that our hearts can't expel old affections. They can only replace them with new, greater, superior ones like the love of God. Grace must replace race. The love of the Father replaces love of the world. Jesus, the one who was God incarnate, gave up his privileges for those of us who were spiritually poor. The precious rose of Sharon, the bright morning star, the one who had no sin, the treasure of heaven, emptied himself for us. Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. The message of 1 John 2 verse 15 and 16 is that the church will be able to love the world when they are not seduced by the world. We have focused on the latter part of this verse, but we are created by God for God, to conform to the image of God, not idols, receive the love of God and not the approval of men, to be, to be, to be those who wrap our identities around his grace, not around race, to fear God, 
to be saved by God, to find refuge and trust and find our significance in the love of the Father. But let us not forget that not loving the world leads to loving the world. When we prioritize truth and justice, when we prioritize empathy and being critical of power, and when we prioritize doing theology in community, it's, it's healthy for the world. It leads to greater missiological um, advancing and the gospel is proclaimed more lovingly. And so my prayer for us is that we would grow in not loving the world so that we can love the world. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And just a reminder, you can find the full notes on everything that Ryan says at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org slash episode 148. See you next time.